Welcome to the Reclaim Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you would like to find out more information about our church, you can visit our website at reclaimchurchtx.com. Thank you, Pastor Mike. I appreciate all of you that were, you know, here yesterday, and, and, and maybe you weren't here yesterday, but you're here today. Just thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, it's an honor for me to be here. Maybe you don't know who I am. Um, as Mike said, I'm Pastor Rob Santiago. I actually pastor over in the city of Paramount uh, with Pastor Omar. I'm his assistant pastor. Um, you can give a hand clap for that. I love my pastor. I've been underneath him for a very long time. And uh, he's, man, he's just really spoken in my life. Oh, I, I, I can run out of words to say. Let's just put it that way of, of what he's done for me and, and my family. Uh, he's just blessed me tremendously. And uh, I've been friends with uh, Pastor Mike, Pastor Angel, for a long time, I, I I don't know, like I don't want to date myself here, but it's been too long. Yeah, let's not let's not embarrass ourselves. Um, but I get to do ministry with them. I say, you know, and um, I said it last. I said it last night. Titles aside, we've done ministry together, and we serve together. And uh, they yelled, they've yelled at me and helped me who I am today as well. So uh, I, I, it's just been an honor. We've done conferences together. We've done. You know, we, I, what is it? We, we, we've done services together. Man, it's just missionary trips together. Um, I've grown up with these guys. And so uh, they've all taught me just tremendous things. And I'm honored. I'm just honored that I'm here. Um, and so this is day two. We got the slide. Okay, we're, we're ready to go. This is day two. Um, and before I begin, I just want to open up in prayer. Amen. Let's just, if you bow your heads with me, Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word, Father. We thank you that you're a God that wants to connect with his people, Lord. And, and Lord, we just know that you're looking to just solidify us, to complete us, Lord. And we ask as we begin to dive in to the scriptures today, Lord, that you begin to speak to us, that it would be your Holy Spirit guiding us and giving us the wisdom. We submit ourselves to you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when Laura was leading worship up here, she said something pretty profound that God's word was really given to us as a form of worship. We are there to read God's word and it's a form of worship when we begin to read it. Now, there are times where we pick up this book and we probably disrespect it a little bit. And, and, and this is what I want to kind of highlight is that we will disrespect it by just, like I said last night, opening it up and then just reading whatever is in front of me at that moment right? And the Bible, it's so deep. It has many levels to it. And if you begin to open it up and read it, there's something called the surface level, okay? What the text is saying, that's the surface level of, of, of what the text or what the Bible's giving you, right? But there's also another level. There's things that are not being said that are screaming at you, that it's not in the text. It's not when you're reading it, but it's screaming at you. Things that are that are not written down, but something's going on. And so then there's other things where there's an application side of this. There's an application layer, which we're going to get into in a bit, where the spirit begins to speak to you. That's where this act of worship begins to come. Because when you're reading God's word, there needs to be some kind of sovereignty in, in this action. Okay, it's not just a book that you would kind of lay out on the beach when you're on vacation and you have it, you know, and you're, you, you know, you're sipping on something and you're reading it. It's a, that's not what you want. You actually want it to come from a place of devotion, a place of worship, a place where it's you're actually 
donating this time for God to speak to you. Because you should come with the expectation that God is going to speak to you every single time you read the word. And so if you don't come with that type of sovereignty or that type of attitude, then it's going to be boring. It's going to be very, very boring. You're not going to get what you expect out of it. And the next time you, you should be reading it, and you know you should be reading it, it's just all of a sudden gotten heavy, and it's collected dust, because you won't pick it up, and you have no desire to read it. So you need to set time aside. I would even say, even as far as create a place where you read your Bible. I, I think recently I've, I've been preaching at my church, and it kind of hit me that I think people, you know, a, a real Bible, like a physical Bible, Right, we have our work laptops open up, and I know my desk for work. You know, I got two screens, and then I realized I looked at my setup, and I'm like, wait a minute, I got to have my Bible there. It needs to be there, and it needs to be open. It needs to be open. I remember my grandfather. I would walk into his room, and the first thing I'd see, he, as soon as I walk in, on his on the right hand side, he'd have the Bible open. But the funny thing was, I, I thought it was kind of ridiculous at the time because I wasn't saved. Is that every word was highlighted, so it kind of like defeated the purpose. I'm like, what does this mean, man? And I realized, you know what? Every word was highlighted because he felt the Spirit at that moment. And you can only imagine when God is speaking to you that much, you just want to highlight every single thing, including the grammar right? Grammar is important. I don't have a slide for this, but I'm just going to tell you. Some of your Bibles, the text's in red. You guys ever see the text that's in red? That's Jesus talking. When Jesus is talking, he's the ultimate authority. That means you should listen. That means you shouldn't be like too tired. Like, I'm just going to read through this really quick so I can get through the chapter. No. If that text turns red on you, that's urgent. That means God is speaking. It's recorded have some reverence, right? Then there's like capital letters, H, him. H-I-M, but the H is capitalized. Him, he, the H is capitalized. This is the publication telling you that it's referring to Jesus. Okay, and so you need to be able to identify those things in your Bible. You need to be able to, uh, it should just jump right out, right out at you the moment you begin to read it and you see little subtleties like that, don't just take it lightly, but realize they're there for a reason. The publication is, is doing it on purpose. And so let's review really quickly what I talked about last, or last night. Okay, last night, I talked about how the Bible is a living text. So what does that mean? That means it's gonna jump out at you, it's gonna speak to you. Every single time you read it, you should come with that expectation. It's a living text. It's not like some book that you picked up from the library. It's actually going to speak to you, and it was written, you know, so long ago, but it's still relevant to today. It doesn't die. Everything that's mentioned in there can be, it can be ap you know, applicable for today. Then we talked about the Reformation issue, how the Catholic Church began to uh, just kind of tell people what the Bible said because it was written in Latin, and not everyone could read Latin. Well, many people didn't read Latin. So the church, you know, their dose of the Bible when they go to church would just be from what the priest was saying to the congregates at the time. Then it got translated to German, right? Martin Luther came and said, this isn't right. It became a modern language, and now people can begin to read the Bible on their own. This was a big deal. 
because now you can read truth. And one of the biggest things that came out of that when Martin Luther began to translate it was the fact that faith is what gets you saved. But the Catholic Church wasn't always preaching that. And so this was a big deal. The next thing I told you last night, we need to have some foreknowledge, and we went over those slides, and we went over the genres, and we went over the different types of literature that's in front of you when you read your word. These are things that you need to come, you know, when you have your devotion, you come with. you understanding this is what genre I'm reading. So today, we're going to go over an actual method, okay? This method kind of changed my life a little bit. So I look at the Bible really different after I studied and read about this. And I, I was just like, wow, I'm blown away because it took my study to a new level. Because I think what a lot of us are doing is we'll open up the Bible and we don't know where to begin. And we don't know like what I'm reading, what, what, is, what is going on here. And I'm hoping later today we can do some reading together. Okay. So let's go ahead and go to the, the next slide. It's called the inductive method. All right. The inductive method. There's going to be I believe four phases to this method. The first phase is the observation phase, and I'm probably gonna go through this quickly, so Isaiah, hang on, okay? Hang on back there. All right, the observation, the observation method is basically, it takes the role of a detective. So when you're looking at this, I want you to put your CSI cap on. Okay, anybody watch CSI? Yeah, oh, we got a couple people, good, I'm not embarrassed. Um, but see, you gotta put your CSI hat on, right? And you gotta realize, Okay, I, this needs, I need to take a role of a detective. What's going on, right? You need to investigate, ask questions. I think so many times we read the God's word, we'll just kind of skim through it. We're just reading it, but we're not asking ourselves any questions. This needs to be subconsciously. It sh you should hear your voice in your head like, wait a minute, what? I didn't understand that. I think another thing that we do, or we tend to do, is we, we, we like this whole trend of just, I gotta read my Bible you know, quickly, I gotta get this done because it's a chore. But if you're reading it and you're reading it slowly and you're reading it with just the intent of like, I want to understand this, you should be going back and reading sentences over and over again so you have the complete understanding. When you ask yourself questions in your mind, that's what happens. Because you run into a question like, well, why? Well, let me read it again. Let me read it again. Let me read it again. And you begin to read it three times. So how many of you guys, when you, when you were going through school, right, and the teacher gave you, he says, hey, your book report's due in two days. And you crammed it. Yeah. <laughs> you guys raise your hand so fast. Yeah, I, I've done that. Where I'm like, dude, the next 12 hours, I need to read this book. Right? You know what we did to ourselves there? We destroyed ourselves a little bit when we read the Bible because where you say, oh, I got to read it fast. No, read it slow. Read the Bible slow because you are a detective. You are investigating. You need to ask questions like, what does the passage say? What point of view is this author writing from? Because when you look at it, like, why did the author write these words? Why did he say these things? Why is he, what authority is given to him where he can do this? Who would listen to this? Why is this taking place? These are the questions that you should be asking. And if you can't answer those questions, don't move on. Because you're missing something important. It's not a book report due, due in two days. You just want God to speak to you. So the task, if you're really task-oriented, 
on you know, your phone, you put different tasks that you have to do that day, hear from God. That should be your task, not read Colossians chapter 1. You get what I'm saying? Hear from God. Not, oh, I need to do this to check a box today because I'm a Christian. Let's go to the next slide. Literary context. What is the setting of the passage? Before you're diving in, what is the setting of the passage? What is the text preceding and following the passage? What is happening before the passage and after the passage? Here's a problem in the evangelical community. I mentioned this yesterday. I tapped on it just for a quick second, but it's rampant. We'll have YouTube videos out there right now based off two verses, and people come up with a whole theological doctrine about it based off two verses. Excuse me, but the Bible is thick. There is a lot of verses in there. Why would you take just two verses and base your whole theological preference off of just two verses? The biggest thing I learned, and it's the most important thing, is you have to look and see how the passage fits into the greater book, then how the passage fits in the chapter, and then how the passage fits with the author. That's when you get the whole context of the meaning, okay? What is the theme of the passage? Thought flow of the sections. Your Bible is broken out into sections based on the publication and the translation that you have. Some of those are different, but those little titles that you see above a, a paragraph are important. Let the publication lead you. Because when you start to scan it and you look through it, you're saying, okay, well, this is talking about salvation. But if you're not careful, you look at it and saying, oh, this is how we should talk to our brothers. No, this whole passage is talking about salvation. Don't just get caught up in one verse or two verses. How does this whole thing translate? Okay? Let's go to the next one. Observe the facts and events. If this isn't the role of a detective, I don't know what is. What are the facts? What do they mean? What are we going to do about them? These are, these are three things I learned actually from an old boss of mine. Okay? What are the facts? What do they mean? And what are we going to do about them? So what are the facts? What is a fact of the text? You begin to state it. I'll state this fact of the text, right? And then what is the event? What is taking place? I love the book of Acts because there's many events. It's recording Paul, right? And all his mischief that he's doing, right? For the kingdom of God. And, he's play and, and we're starting the church, the early church. So what are the facts? What do we do? What are we going to do about it, right? So the facts, you know, are very important. And if you can't highlight any facts after you've read the passage, you need to read it again. You need to read it again, especially if you're reading narratives. We talked about narratives last night. If you're reading a narrative, you have to be able to identify facts. Look at the actions and the events. What is happening? Because if it's a narrative, you're following a story, right? You're following progression. So you have to be able to identify that. Look how the events relate to each other. How does this relate on a timeline? You have to be able to identify how are the facts relating to each other. How does this fit in with, you know, I understand Paul's writing this, but where did Jesus say that? How, Paul's talking about this, but what did Jesus say that? The prophet said this, did Jesus validate it? Did, you know, and so you, you, you have to be able to 
mix and match here. And you, that's how you observe the facts and the events. And then even when Paul is writing, when you're looking at the New Testament, for example, I'm just going to pick on Paul because he's the easiest. When he's writing these tough concepts, you're literally reading theology. You are reading a theology book. These letters have a lot of theology in them of how you should view salvation, of how you should view these different things. So you can actually begin to look at the facts and see how it matches up with the theology of what Paul is writing. Don't overlook the facts. It's very important that you guys begin to identify the different facts that are put in front of you. Let's go to the next slide. Observe the words and phrase. Key words, repeated words or phrases. The, the different authors in your Bible have different writing styles. They have many different kind of words that they constantly use. Sometimes these words are directed at certain groups of people. Let me explain. When you're reading a letter, again, I'm gonna use Paul as an example all night tonight, okay? When you're reading a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, and he begins to talk about a patriarch such as Abraham, Moses. He begins to talk about these great individuals from the Old Testament. He's trying to get the Jewish folks locked in on the passage. When he begins to write about salvation, philosophy, ways of thought, He's trying to get the Greeks or the Gentiles locked in on the passage. In the same letter, you're going to see Paul go back and forth here. And if you begin to unpack some of his stuff, you will recognize really quickly that he is very crafty at that. Because if you're a Jewish person in this time, right, and you're reading this letter, and you hear about an early father like Abraham or Moses, you're going to be like, what? What's he talking about? Because Paul is presenting a point. He's presenting theology at that moment. And so what you need to do is identify those things. He's not, he's not doing it just to be passive. He's doing it strategically. He's a very strategic writer. So a lot of these authors are strategic writers. They are persuasive writers because they have to persuade the audience. You guys with me? There's emphasis on words, tone, connectivity between words and phrases. I, you know, my favorite thing is when you are, when you hear a repeated word and you don't know what that word is, chances are you need to stop and you need to pull out a dictionary or ask Siri. I guess you can ask Siri now. You don't need to buy these books anymore. Everything's, <laughs> everything's accessible. Uh, back in the day, you had to buy these, you had to go get a book. Like, I don't know what this is. I got to go get a book. You know, and, and there used to be this thing called books, Christian bookstores. I, you know, maybe they're still here in Texas, but in California, where I'm from, <laughs> unfortunately, pray for the Christian bookstores in California. They're closing down very rapidly. And so you'd, you'd have to go get a, what's called a concordance so you could do a word study. And I remember I was talking to my wife and I was asking her opinion, like, should I do a word study with him? And I'm like, I don't know if I need to do that anymore because you could literally say, what's the word for salvation in Greek on Google? And it comes right up. 
right? And you could, you could do all those things now, and, and I encourage you to do that. It's okay to do those things. So you could do your word studies, but these phrases are key words. If they're repeated, let them jump out at you. Let them trigger you. Like, oh, wait a minute. He said that two times in the past two verses. You know, he, he mentioned circumcision nine times in this, in this chapter. There's a reason for those things, and you have to find the understanding of it. Let's go to the next slide. Observe the form and structure. Observe the form of literary style. I presented that to you yesterday. The genres are key because you need to approach those a certain way. Right? If you're, if you're going to read some wisdom literature, you're going to run into poetry. You're not going to read poetry the same way that you read a narrative. It should be approached differently. Right? Remember I said but that, that wisdom literature, it's going to bring out emotion. The author's very emotional sometimes. And he uses emotional words. Feelings are at the forefront. They're on the surface of the text. And so this literary form of style, you need to be able to identify, okay? You need to identify those things. What is the mood or feeling of the passage? One of my favorite passages in scripture is in Romans chapter seven. Because in Romans, if you've noticed something, in Romans one through nine, there's something called the Roman road. And that road leads you to the understanding and the doctrine of salvation. Paul begins to write about that. But in chapter seven, he takes a quick turn. And he begins to talk about the things that he struggles with, right? And he says, I do what I not want to do. I only do the things that, I, you know, that make me wicked. And he begins to talk about himself and he gets upset with himself. That tone is critical. You're literally feeling the emotion of the author. As Paul begins to write, you could see he looks at himself as just somebody that's filthy and he's just upset with himself because he can't get it right. And I love that because that should grip you. Look at the emotion behind the text. Those are, there are words that are going to be said where you need to identify the emotion. Those words are heavy. And sometimes you need to say, well, what the heck? He's writing about this, the salvation, and then he quickly turns, makes a right turn in chapter 7, and then he begins to talk about his wickedness and his temptations in life. And it's really so he can connect his reader to understand that even him himself, how you view him, is struggling. That's a sermon in itself. That's a whole sermon. And, I, and so this mood or feeling is something you should look for. Look for it. Because you're taking the role of a detective. Look for the mood or the feeling. How, you have to find it. What structure is emerging, right? Note the cause and effects, the progression the grammatical signals, right? Exclamation points, periods, commas. These things are important to identify for your flow. Is the author giving clues to his argument? The author will give clues. The apostle Paul always does this. He always gives clues where he'll talk about Abraham and Sarah, and then he'll throw a clue in there, and we'll read it a little bit later probably, about Hagar. Right? And so you're wondering, why is he talking about this Old Testament stuff? Well, because he's trying to drive a point home. And so when he's, when he's talking about those things, you need to be able to identify that point. All right, let's go to the, go to the next slide, Isaiah. Observe the background and setting. Observe the background and setting. There's several backgrounds you need to be able to observe. Observe the historical background. How does this fit in history? What is happening? 
What is happening at this moment? Where is it on a timeline? Remember, we talked about that yesterday. Where is it on a timeline? Right? Is it, is it during the time of the 40 years of wandering with the people of Israel? Are they in Egypt? Are they still enslaved in Egypt? Are they, are we, did Christ come yet? Or did he, did he ascend already? Like, what, where am I at in this, in this text? Where, what is being done? What is being talked about, right? And then there's the cultural background. Because the New Testament was different. Remember we talked about Hellenism, right? It was a big thing. Philosophy, Greek mythology was taking place. Then you have all these different religions because the Mediterranean was filled with port cities. So that you had the, the exchange of ideas taking place. So that's why Paul, when he writes, he's so emotional because he gets angry because he's got to battle some other religious stuff. Relationship between the writer and the recipient. What's that relationship like? Who's the audience? Do they have a relationship? Is a relationship needed? And then the recipient situation, especially in letters, right? Because most of the time, and I'll just tell you this, any letter that's written, it's probably because they need to address a circumstance. You know, I just got, I just got done teaching. We, we, we read verse by verse through Thessalonians at my church. And it was just, it was an awesome time because I love this one because most of Paul's letters, he's writing to a church. And so, and usually the church name is in the title of the book. So the church name is Thessalonica. That's the city, right? So there's the church in Thessalonica. Therefore, it's called Thessalonians, the people of Thessalonica. But he's writing to them, and he's actually, he's actually fallen in love with these people. Because it's one of the first times that that letter, he's just like so proud of them. He's like, you didn't waver. You didn't waver. You, you, you stayed true to the faith. Even amongst persecution, you did not waver. You stayed true to it. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy. You're so sensitive to the spirit, my brother. I love you. These are heavy words that he says. Those words should give you an understanding of the relationship that he has with them. I long to see you. I can't wait to see you again. It's like a love letter. You know, the ones that you get from your spouse? I guess I'm the only one. I'm just kidding. I've been married a long time. I don't get those anymore. And I don't write them either, okay? I'm guilty too. So, you know, so, um, you know, again, it's, it's, a, it's like a love letter, you know? And, and so these are relationships you need to be able to identify. And when we read Philemon, there's actually going to be something that's going to, that should jump out at you that if you're not paying attention, you did probably didn't catch, right? But for example, when he writes to Timothy, he loves Timothy. Like, it's almost like, dude, stop. You know, but he loves Timothy a lot. And he, that relationship is very, very tight. That's like one of the best disciples he's ever had. He just loves them. And so you, in First and Second Timothy, he's given him all this guidance. You could see the relationship right on the surface of the text. And, and, and you, need to be by, you need to be sensitive to those things when you're reading. Let's go to the next slide. Observe the theme. What is the theme? Romans, heavy on salvation, right? So what's the theme in Thessal Thessalonians? I just kind of showed you, right? He's proud of them. He's writing a letter of really just encouragement, you know? And then there's a little dabble of what we call the end times, right? Eschatology is what they call it. So when, when Paul is writing in Thessalonica, he begins to talk about the end times because one of the issues was people were wondering what happens after we die, and so he touches on it very briefly in, in 
1 Thessalonians, because there's actually two letters, but in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about it. And it's just like, and, and those of us that love eschatology, studying the end times, who aren't scared of it, I'm not scared of it, right? I just, I'm a little scared to teach it because it's very difficult. But I love reading about the end times. I do, I enjoy it. In Thessalonians, it talks about, it's just like Revelations. It's a little bit scary. Talks about eschatology. So he, he, he writes about that. And so that's kind of a theme as well. So you need to observe the themes. What exactly is being said throughout not just the chapter, but the whole text? What arguments is being developed? There are arguments that you're going to run into that are being developed. And you need to be able to identify those. The prophets even have arguments. The, the letters have arguments. So what are the key verses? I like this. In your study Bible, because I haven't referenced the study Bible in a while, Study Bible, it should have some key passages there. So before you begin to read, it's okay to flip back, right, and go to the introduction of each book in your study Bible and look at those key passages that the publisher highlighted for you because generally they're very well done and they'll identify the theme. Oh, what's being talked about here? Oh, here are the key passages. And, you know, sometimes, honestly, it's like three verses. So that way you take that in with you. That's the foreknowledge. You're taking it with you. Here is the theme. Now I'm going to take it with me as I read chapter 9. Right? Does it connect with this theme? So do those things. Observe the theme. Highlight the theme in your head. So the next one is going to be now we're going to talk about interpretation. Let's go to the next slide. So the inductive method interpretation. We got done with the observation, right? You're supposed to be taking a role of a detective. Now I want you to think about interpretation. Next slide. So interpretation Analysis, the genre, right? Consider what type of literature you're reading. Prose, poetry, narrative, laws, prophetic, and parable. I threw parable, and parable is important, right? You need to be able to identify that Jesus is talking about a parable. Apply the specific principles of each. We went over that yesterday. So I hope you guys took notes. If not, I'll be sending my slides anyways if you sign up. Next slide. Lexical analysis. Now, this is just a cool word I, I threw in there. Okay, lexical just means the language, the words that are being used. But lexical analysis, consider the significance and meaning of words. What type of words are being used? Did you know that when you're looking at this, like the word law, for example, has diff there's 10 different words in the Hebrew language for law. In the English language, there's only one. So that translation, for those of us that are bilingual, I'm not bilingual, but that translation can get lost a little bit. Well, what law are they talking about? Are they talking about Levitical law? Are they talking about the law of the land, right? Who's in power? Are they talking about the Mosaic laws? Are they talking about sacrificial laws? There's different laws. So unfortunately for us, it's dumbed down a little bit. So, it, But it's okay for you to park your brain on that word. Well, what law are they talking about, right? And if you don't understand that or you don't know, that's where the... the um, the study Bible comes in very, very handy to kind of help you because you'll have those footnotes. And in those footnotes, it'll identify those type of situations in translation. So I encourage you guys, you could even look it up though. You can look it up online. You could, you know, you research it like the word law, what word is being used there. That's a lexical understanding or analysis. Determine the meaning of key words by comparing translations. This is a fun one, right? If you were to type in a browser, um, if you were to type in a browser, a verse, let's say just any verse, there are several 
websites that you'd click on and they have different types of translations, NIV, ESV, New King James, King James. And you could begin to look at what this passage says from each of those translations. This is very helpful, especially if those of us that preach or write a sermon or teach, right? You should be looking at those different ones, especially if you don't understand the passage. I do this even today. For the years I've been teaching, I still have to do this because I'll read a passage like, oh, I don't like the way my ESV Bible is translating that. Let me see what it says in the Message Bible. I know some of us that's like, oh, I don't know. That's too fun. That's too elementary. I was big on this, man. I used to scoff at it. The Message Bible, that's like one verse is like 10 sentences, and it's just like amplified so much. And there's the Amplified Bible now, right? And everything's like, whoa, it's like a Bible plus 10,000 more pages because it's just this drawn out understanding, right? But it's okay to compare these texts to each other. This is the lexical analysis. So you have a complete understanding. I promise you, if you do this, you will have a greater understanding because you're getting these different views and you're getting this different perspective and it should come together for you. Oh, now I get it. Because you wanna take the greater understanding before the lesser understanding. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes when we open our Bible, what we do is we say, okay, I, I like this verse. It makes sense to me. I love it. I'm gonna write a whole sermon about it. But what's the greater understanding? One verse is not enough. What is the whole passage saying? Then what is the whole Bible saying? Okay, so I've been in several debates. When I was in college, I had to debate the gender study. And you're probably like, oh my gosh, what is that? Well, back then, because I'm old now, it was uh, women in ministry. Should women preach? Should they teach? And I've been in many debates on this, okay? I'm not going to give you the answer, though. You have to figure it out for yourself, okay? But I've been in these debates where people will take this passage and then they'll create an argument and they'll present it. And I'm like, wait a minute, you, the, a, lot of the, a lot of the arguments were, you're forgetting about the whole passage and how, or the, the whole Bible and what the Bible is saying, not just what one verse is saying. What is that Bible saying, right? And so there's, there's things like, well, what was the intent of God when he created woman? Well, he didn't create woman from, you know, the heel of man's foot, he, you know, to be underneath him. He didn't create woman from, you know, the skull of a man. He chose a rib to be a side man, to be right beside man. And that's how he created. So you begin to analyze things like that, right? And so these debates get pretty heated. Um, you know, it's a hot topic, of course, you know, uh, in the evangelical community. And we would... Honestly, some, sometimes it would get so ugly that we would stop talking to each other when we debated. And it was terrible. It was like tearing us apart. It was just bad, right? It's probably the worst idea you could have is have young students begin to debate each other, you know? Um, and I got attacked a lot. My view was, was just very different uh, from the rest of the schools, it seemed. Uh, but I loved it, and it made me who I am today. Uh, but I, I, I just, honestly, I think sometimes we just get really parked on one honestly, just one word sometimes and one verse, but you have to see how is it taken to the whole of the Bible. 
Use word study resources. Kind of talked about that a little bit. And establish the meaning of words or phrases by studying its use in other areas. What other areas is that word being used in? Where do we, I mentioned earlier the word circumcision. Why is that a big deal? You should know that by now, why it's a big deal. We see that word in the Old Testament as, a, as an established covenant with God, with Abraham, right? And then we see that Paul in the New Testament, and we're talking almost a thousand years later, using that same word that is used back then because there's importance to that word. And it's not just about the surface level of the word. It's about something changed. God, Jesus came, so something changed. So now do we follow the sacrificial laws? Do we follow the Levitical laws? Do we still do these things, right? Or was Jesus enough as a sacrifice? Next slide. Historical and cultural analysis. Study the historical and cultural issues of the passage, the Jew and Gentile conflict that's taking place in the New Testament. Remember, Jesus changed everything. Did he just die for the Jews or 144,000? Or did he also die for the Gentiles? Well, based off what Paul's theology is telling us in the letters and the instructions that he's giving to the early church, it's clear that he also died for the Gentiles and that we have become grafted in. That word grafted in, we are now made just like the chosen people or the chosen people from the Old Testament. We have now been grafted in, and so these, these words are important. And so now Paul has to understand that there's this conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles, and what he's doing throughout the whole New Testament is bring these two groups together as one in Christ. So when he's bringing these two groups together, he's trying to mend it. He's trying to show each other, treat each other with this, honor them, right? Love each other. This is how you should how you should resolve conflict. And he, and honestly, it was an ugly battle because the Jews kind of just scoffed at the Gentiles, meaning that they weren't chosen. And the Gentiles were like, well, I want to be, I believe in Jesus. I love him. Can I be in your circle? And the Jews were like, no, you can't. But Paul's bringing them together. There needed to be, be this melding. And luckily his letters bring us together. Look up the significance of any person's places or events. I said the New Testament is going to reference things in the Old Testament. When they do, that's heavy. Also in your Bible, in your Bible, if you have your Bible here, right? And, I, and honestly, I don't think the apps do a good job of this unless you enable this feature, depending on the app that you're using. But there are references sometimes on the edge of the page, sometimes in the middle, and then sometimes on the bottom. Don't ignore those. I know those are very fine print, right? What do people tell you when you're signing contracts or reading? Read the fine print. Don't forget to look at those references. Those references are from the publication telling you, look, I'm referencing, so, or this author is referencing something that took place over in this text. And so then you could do your cross analysis that way, okay? Look up significant any persons, places, or events. Know your events. Did anybody do the timeline? Anybody do that? Nobody did it? Oh, man. It's up to you guys. I'm leading you to water there. It's up to you if you want to drink it. All right? Do your time. Do, do the timeline and begin to compare with each other. I encourage you guys to do that. Let's go to the next slide. Structural analysis. Note the natural divisions of the text and do the final following. Okay? There are divisions in the text. Identify each thought unit, clause with the passage. Each verb represents a clause. 
let the verbs jump out at you. This is basic literature analysis, right? Let the verbs, the action words, what is being done, let them jump out at you and then identify the clause, okay? The clause is basically the one or two sentences that follow that idea or thought. Determine if the clause is the main statement or the subordinate statement, right? Because there are sentences and then there's gonna be sub-thoughts to those sentences. Identify those. Outline the passage to look at the broader picture. After you're done reading, sometimes outline it. Here's the main argument. What were the sub-arguments? This is important for you to do. If you could do that, then you could write a sermon. Those of you that want to be pastors or teachers, I, you have to learn how to do this. You should be able to outline what you read. And if you can't, guess what? Read it again. If you can't outline it after you've read it on a piece of paper, or, or if you can type it, if those of us that are, you know, love computers, if you can't outline it after you've read it, you need to read it again. You need to read it again. You didn't understand it. You didn't get it. So read it again. Remember, it's not a book report due in two days. And what's your task? I want to hear from God. It's not, oh, I must read this because my one-year Bible told me I needed to. All right? Let me talk about that for a second. One-year Bibles are great. They're great. They'll get you through the Bible, but they'll get through it fast. I kind of like the two, three-year Bible. Like, you'll go through it slower. You're not pressured so much. Because when you're reading God's word, it should take time. I know five minutes is just not enough. It's just not. It's not enough for you to open up and do an analysis. It's not, if you have a study Bible, maybe. If you, know, if you have a good study Bible, highly recommend it that you buy one if you don't have one. If you don't have a study Bible, there's something wrong. You need to buy one. Okay? Because let me tell you something. I, you know, the past two years, like me and Pastor Omar and Pastor Isaac, we talk about this all the time. Um, your phone is such a distraction. You, you'll people say, well, I'll read the, I read the Bible on my phone. I was like, dude, you're distracted. You got notifications coming up. And people say, well, I'm really good at my notifications and managing those. No, you're not. Nobody is. You know, I'm driving today. I got a notification of a photo I took 10 years ago on my watch. I'm like, well, that's a distraction. I could have caused an accident. You know, nobody's got their notifications in order. What I've been doing lately, and I love my wife, I'll hand my wife my phone, like, I'm going to write a sermon. I'm going to write a lesson. Take my phone. You know what I've also done is they have the new focus modes. Why am I doing, why am I telling you this? Because I, I, sorry, I want to be practical tonight, okay? I love the new focus modes that the iOS, the iPhone has. You could just hit focus, and then it tells people that are texting you, this guy's in focus mode. So don't expect a response, in other words. Right? I love that. And then my phone doesn't notify me. It doesn't vibrate. Or I'll put it face down on the bed. I put it face down on the bed. I put it on silent. And then boom. I don't have it on me. I take my, my watch off. If you have a, an Apple watch, take it off. Because it's, you want to hear from God. You don't want to hear from, you know, your, your tia because she's inviting you for dinner later on, right? Well, you don't want to miss that either. I get it. But <laughs> listen, God's word will feed you more than that dinner. Okay? God's word will feed you more than that dinner. So, so set yourself for success in your spirituality, right? 
get yourself a study Bible. And don't put a price on it. Husband and wives, I know budget's tight sometimes. But don't put a price on God's word. I know study Bibles can be kind of pricey for a lot of people. It's okay. Let that, right? Because when you look, at you got a brand new study Bible. There's different types. And if it's getting you and it's encouraging you to read it and there's maps in it. Remember we talked about geography? And you begin to open that up and it feels good. And if you're happy with it, it's going to be easier to pick it up. You know, let your emotions lead you to the word of God. Don't put a price on it. You know, if your wife or husband says, oh, I really want that Bible, you should say, well, it's kind of expensive. Just get it, honey. Just get it. For those of you, maybe you're not married, you know, and your budget's tied. I get it. You know, I've been there. I was a poor college student, and uh, I've been there. And, and, but I always told myself, I'm going to get myself a good study Bible. That's going to keep me grounded, and it, and it has. So structural analysis is important. Look at the structure. How should we interpret? Summary analysis. Present your conclusions of the author's intention, direction of the passage. What did they just say? Remember I said outline it? But what did they just say? Repeat it back in your own words to yourself. Repeat it back to you, in your own words to yourself. You know, oh, but sometimes I do this like, ooh, this author is upset. Or, oh man, they got to come into them. You know, it's funny, I, I was, um, one of my favorite Old Testament prophets is Habakkuk. Why? Because nobody could say the name, but I can. It makes me sound smart. No, it's three chapters. It's three chapters. But the timeline is important. And how much time do I have? Okay. The timeline's important. Because in Habakkuk, the Assyrians are, or no, I'm sorry, the Babylonians are coming. And he's upset, like, and the people are upset. The people of God are like, you know, we hear about these Babylonians. And I encourage you to read Habakkuk tonight. Just read it tonight. But I'm going to give you a quick summary. Okay, just real quick. Habakkuk, right, it, the Babylonians are coming. And people are like, what are we going to do? These people are awful. They do terrible things. They drag people through the streets on horses and carriages or carriages. And, and they just, it's just not, the chariots are so big. The people are so strong. How are we going to overcome this? How are we going to do it? And so they're asking for Habakkuk, like he's carrying this burden for the people because he's a prophet. In other words, he's you know, kind of like a modern day pastor. He's got to hear the burdens of the people. And so he's like, man, he goes off. The Bible says, and he, he goes onto the rampart of the city. The rampart of the city is where like the guard towers are at. And he begins to wrestle with God. Chapter one. Remember, there's three chapters. He, he begins to wrestle with God and he's like, God, what am I going to do? What do I tell these people? And he's, he, it's like, now it's like a prayer. And he's like, God, what do I tell these people? Right? And then when he gets into chapter two, he's kind of, he's kind of bitter and mad at God. And he's just like, you know what, God, I, you know, I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to sit here on the rampart and I'm going to wait. So chapter two, he waits. He waits. You know what chapter three is? Because I want you to read chapter two. Well, actually, I want you to read all of it. But chapter three, guess what happens? He begins to worship. Imagine what happened between chapter one and chapter two. He begins to worship. You know what happens if there was a chapter four? The Babylonians completely demolished them. 
This is why you should know your history. And you're probably wondering, well, that's not a good story. It's not supposed to be sometimes. It's not supposed to fit in your little box. Because what ends up happening is the kingdom gets established still. Granted, for that moment in time, it may seem unfair. But sometimes it just isn't fair, guys. His ways are not our ways. So when you're reading God's word, it's not going to fit in your box. Sometimes it's just, man, this is awful. This is terrible. Bad things happen in the Old Testament. It's just awful. And so I encourage you guys, you know, do your summary analysis. Remember these things. Let's go back to the slide real quick. I kind of deviated, but I just felt like I needed to do that. How does it apply to the whole purpose of the book? Take these scriptures and these passages and look at the whole book. Content, summarize the key thoughts, theme, focus of the passage. And then context is another layer. State how the, the identified theme continues. So content is what's on the surface. Context is how does that surface fit into the rest of it? You guys with me? Okay. So how does it fit in the author's overall thought and flow? And then what is the conclusion? Confirm it. Restate the passage in your own words to yourself. Okay? So now, the next phase. Correlation. Correlation, take the role of a theologian. Every single one of you, it's okay to dabble in this. All right? Take the role of a theologian. You know the themes of the Bible because you've experienced them. Love, salvation, comfort. These are theological kind of pillars. So how do we correlate it? To go to the next slide. Uh, take the role of a theologian. We need to integrate passages into the whole picture or theme and then focus the passage's message with the broader scope of the biblical truth by linking it to the major themes or doctrines in Scripture. Don't be afraid to link things together. Well, when Jesus is talking about salvation and Paul is talking about salvation, do they link up and do they share the same thought? That's okay. Do those things. Challenge it. Because you'll always lose. If you challenge God's word, you're going to lose. But challenge your own thinking on it. Like, okay, does this, does this somehow correlate that? Guess what? That's how we come up with great sermons. When Pastor Mike and Pastor Angel are just hit, they're on on a Sunday, right? It's because they did some correlation. They're linking verses together from different authors, from different passages, different themes, different genres, and they're linking them together and they're presenting it to you. And God begins to speak to you because that was taking place already. Do this in your home. Do this at your desk or on your bedside, whatever it is. Do it because God will begin to speak to you as if you're sitting in church on a Sunday morning. Let's go to the next slide. Ask the theological questions. What does this passage teach us about God? Remember, this, this tells us a lot about our creator. There's no other book that does that. So what is it teaching you about God? What characteristics is it giving us about God? What attributes do we see that God has for his people? Or I'd say this in another way. What features does God have? I like that one. I like to ask myself, what feature is God expressing here? Right? I love when God's angry. They're like, oh my God, glad I'm not them. He's mad. Right? And especially like the conquest with Joshua. 
ooh, some of the things that are said there are very wrathful things, right? About the Philistines and about the people that are occupying their land. He's like, man, I want you to castrate those idols. Like, whoa, dude, is that necessary? And they did it. You know, it's like, <laughs> what does the passage teach us about the relationship between God and man? I love this one. Because God had intentions with us, still does today. So when he created us, he created us intentionally. So what does that say? You know, what does that say about his intentions? What does the passage teach us about how people should treat each other? This is a nice thought, right? Uh, again, how should we treat each other? Paul has to address this all the time in his letters. Let's go to the next slide. Find other places in the Bible that address the same theme, comparing words, phrases, ideas, events, and stories. How do the two passages supplement each other? How do they strengthen each other? Compare passages. I call it a little bit of textual criticism. Cross-reference. Remember I told you about the side, the sidebar, maybe the middle, depending on your publication. You know, look at those and read them. When I'm studying or I'm preparing for a class and I'm going over, especially like I just went through Thessalonians, I noticed that it kept taking me to Acts, specifically Acts chapter 7, because there was one event that sparked the church in Thessalonica. Believe it or not, it was Paul begins to go into the synagogues. I'm going to just paraphrase, paraphrase Acts chapter 7 for you. Paul begins to go into um, this synagogue and he had major influence there, so much as the synagogue like got a bad reputation. Like, well, there's this guy Paul going in there, and he's talking about different things, and and then now all of a sudden the reputation of synagogue is is like, what's going on here? This is terrible because this is what we, what we believe, and Paul's bringing out something new. Well, when he's bringing out something new, it creates a ruckus, so they had to escape, right? And it talks about this guy Jason. This guy Jason, he's in literally. Two sentences, but this guy housed them. So they're like, well, they got away, but there's Jason. There he is. Look at him all smug. He housed them. Let's get him. So they put Jason in jail. And Paul and Timothy and Silas, they ran away. They ran away. They got on a boat. They're like, see ya. Thank you, Jay. Good luck, man. They get him out of jail, though because they got put in jail, and, and, and then Paul's not really welcome back anymore. They got kicked out of the city. But what happened there, and then you go to Thessalonica, and I wouldn't know this if it wasn't for my references, it brought me to that passage in Acts 7. But that's why Paul's so proud of them. Because that moment when he began to convert them in that synagogue, they, they felt the Holy Spirit. And Paul writes about that in Thessalonians. At that moment, in Acts chapter 7, the Holy Spirit fell on those people, and it started a church in Thessalonians. Isn't that powerful? It started the church in Thessalonica because of that one moment, because Jason housed them. And we don't know anything else about this guy. This guy housed them, and he, he, let, he just let them stay in their house, man. He's like, I believe what you guys are doing. You're going to stay with me. He let them stay in, their, in his house. And he got arrested for it. And because of that, the Holy Spirit fell on those people. So how does a passage 
you know, supplement each other and look at those references. So next, next one, consult theological sources. Investigate a theme that seems significant to you by using theological books or dictionaries. I would say this, talk to your pastor before you do this. Because there's plenty of wannabe theologians out there with an agenda. So you want to learn from a source that is, that is open and understanding, right? So this will help you supplement your study and get full understanding of doctrinal implications of your text. Read extra biblical resources. Read other authors. It's okay. But again, consult your pastor. If you want to be a true disciple, consult your pastor on this. There are many authors that can get you into trouble. I've seen it. I've seen it cause subcultures and division in the church. Okay? Your pastor should have the ultimate authority when it comes to scripture in your life. He should guide you for that. All right? And so it's not so, oh, well, so-and-so on YouTube at 11 p.m. at night. That late night stuff is weird to me. I don't get it. Like, I'm going to go live at 11 p.m. and talk about demons. You need to be there. Like, no, thank you. That, like, why 11 p.m.? Why not Sunday morning? What happened to you? You got all this authority and understanding. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> careful with that, guys. Let's go to the next slide. Application. This one's fun. We're going to kind of go through this quickly for the sake of time. Application is pretty simple, right? Take the role of the practitioner. Implementation. How to implement scriptures in your own lives. How is this speaking to me? Our ultimate goal here is to serve the Lord more effectively as the truths of the passages are put into practice, to share these truths with each other, okay? Reflection. Prayerfully consider the theological, spiritual, and ethical messages found in the passage. Pray before you read, meditate on the passage, and then apply it to your life. I'm going to say it again. Pray before you read, meditate on the passage, and then apply it to your life. Any of you guys journal in here? Journal? Journaling's great for that. You pray, you then meditate on the passage that you just read, and then you say, how do I apply it to my life? How can I affect somebody because of this passage today? Maybe I should share it on a text message with a brother or sister in Christ. Next slide, action. Transfer your hard study into practical obedience. Uh-oh, that's a bad word, obedience. Because it holds us accountable, right? Personalize it. What does this passage suggest I should appreciate, enjoy, learn, or be, or be or do as a believer? Then evaluate it. What attitude should I have toward God, myself, and others based on this passage? Where am I now in this area of life? What practical steps can I take in response to the Holy Spirit? to do what this passage teaches us. Remember, you want to have some reverence here when you're reading God's word for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. We are begging you to do that. We want the Spirit to speak to you when you read because all the time people, we don't want to be just like the Reformed, right? Or the Reformers, right? Before the Catholic Church where they would just come and say, hey, this is what the Holy Spirit is telling me to tell you. No, you want the the word of God to speak to you a lot of times. You know, and even the Bible says, those that give you words, take it with a grain of, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Be careful with it. You know, know who they are. Now, if your pastor gives you a word, you're okay. I'll tell you that right now, you're okay. But if some guy, you know, on Instagram Live gives you a word, hey, you know, talk to your pastor about it. You know, don't exclude it. Like, well, this guy said at 11 p.m. at night, 
that I should be preaching, Pastor. You know, I got all these words, and you're kind of, you're putting a muzzle on me, man. There's a reason for that. There's a time and a place, right? Um, how can we implement? Let's go to the next one. How can we implement? Consider how you would apply your study in regards to practical ministry from your biblical study. Prepare a sermon or speech. Prepare a devotional. Journal. Address on a current topic in the news. That's good. You know, rather than what politicians tell you how you should act, you should probably read your Bible first. Don't let a news outlet dictate what you should be doing with your life. Read God's word. Write a theological essay, statement of beliefs. I love this one. Write what you believe. Write what you believe. I have this. I have this. I love it. My college made me do it, and I was so great. At the time, I hated it. College, But now I look back on it. I read it every now and then, and I kind of get a little teary-eyed. I'm like, man, this is incredible. This is, I wrote this. This is what I believed then. You know, I've come a long way. Or, you know, it just makes me analyze my life a little bit. Write what you believe. Implement a solution to a real-life problem. The ultimate of the learning process is being able to express to others what you have learned. I'll tell you this, and this is kind of my motto, each one teach one. I said this on Tuesday in a production meeting I had, and I spoke. They invited me to speak. I said, each one should teach one. A lot of you have a lot of knowledge, and you stay quiet. Each one should teach one. What did the Bible tell you today? Tell somebody. Tell a family member. Tell your spouse. Text it to a friend. Put it, put it on your social media. Doesn't have to be pictures of food. Right? Just put a verse up. Even if people call you a hypocrite, put it up. Put a verse up. Right? Because it may help somebody. Figures of speech. Let's go through this. Simile. Go to the next one. A figure, a simile is a figure of speech in which two essentially unlike things are compared, often in a phrase or introduced by like or as. For example, the guards shook in fear and became like dead men. Didn't mean they died, it's just a simile, okay? Became like dead men. I, I, I'm gonna be honest with you. People take some of this stuff way too literal. And, and it's like, well, that's actually a wrong interpretation because it says like dead men, right? Let's go to the next one, a metaphor. A metaphor is a figure of speech in which a word or phrase that ordinarily, ordinarily designates one thing is, being, is used to designate another without using like or as, thus making an impl implicit comparison. In other words, Herod is referred to as a fox. It's a metaphor, okay? Because it's, it's kind of like, it's giving the description, he's kind of like a fox. Now, it doesn't mean he was pretty or handsome or anything like that, okay? It's not a modern, remember, it's not modern, okay? So, <laughs> if you call me a fox, I'd be like, thanks, man. <laughs> this is Herod, a fox wasn't a compliment back then, right? It's not a compliment back then. So, you want to, it's referred to as a fox. So, these metaphors are in the Bible, so you have to be ready for these things. Another figure of speech, parable. A simple story illustrating a moral or religious lesson. In other words, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the kingdom is like a treasure. So the parable is kind of measuring these. It's a story, right? Here's a parable we'll read together really quickly. I'll read it to you. Go to the next one. I know Isaiah, thank you, man. You're, going, you're doing great. The parable of the lost coin. 
Short parable, but speaks volumes, right? When you read this, let's look at Luke chapter 15, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do we have a name of this woman? Kind of, it's a story that Jesus is telling. Did it really happen? No. It's just drawing comparison. Your pastors do this. Make comparisons. Jesus was doing it at this time. He's making comparison. He's trying to get you to get into it. Now, what I like about parables is Jesus did this to filter out those that wanted to hear. For example, the Sermon on the Mount. A picture of the setting. He's on a mount. He's kind of like on a hill. Almost like, kind of like some little amphitheater hill, right? Like he's, and then there's people listening to him as he's saying different parables about life, right? Those that wanted to to listen and hear his words stayed till the end so they understood the whole parable. The Bible says, and even on that Sermon on the Mount, that people would leave. The parables were used, Jesus used parables as a way to filter people from understanding the kingdom. So those that wanted to hear from God would stay and listen. Those that left, left, kind of like today. Right? So that's what parables do. Doesn't mean that it happened. And some people want to say, well, see, that didn't happen. So the Bible, you know, it's making it up there. It's fictional. No, it's nonfiction. It's a story within a story. It's a story within a narrative. This is what Jesus said. Amen? Euphemism, a toning down of speech that is either too rude or harsh. In other words, Judas left to go to his own place called hell. <laughs> In Acts chapter 1, verse 25, right? There's another one. Um, you know, he knew her, usually referring to sexual intimacy. Things that aren't too harsh sometimes are broken down. You're like, wait a minute, that when the Bible says that, that's what it means? Yeah, it, it really does. Uh, you know, he knew her. In other words, he laid with her, right? Things like, oh, wait a minute, what's happening here? Abraham slept with Hagar? Yes, he did. He did. It's, it's gossip, I know, right? The Bible's so... <laughs> Again, it's this, it's it, it, these, these words of toning down. And you're probably like, well, I, don't, I don't understand it. Well, I hope when you're looking at these figures of speech, it helps you as you're reading to understand these things, right? Then you have typology. Typology types are ties together historical connections between events, persons, or things in the Old Testament with similar events, persons, or things in the New Testament. I said this yesterday. New Testament validating the Old Testament, the prophets in the Old Testament validating the New Testament. It's textual criticism. You begin to validate each other, and all it does is it gives each other authority. And it's really the only book that does that perfectly. The Bible does this perfectly. So we call that textual criticism. Find those different things and criticize it. Okay, we gotta, I have a lot, I have a lot more we gotta get through. Allegory. We're gonna go through allegory. A story woven together with several points of comparison. Um, I was gonna read... I'm going to read it. Galatians chapter 4, 4, verse 21. Go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. 
It's Friday night, right? If you're at a club, you'd be there till 2 a.m. Don't lie to me. Okay? It's Friday night. All right? I know some of you have work, okay? But I, I, I'm going to go through it. I'm just going to go through it. All right? Uh, it's not too much more. All right? But I do want to read with you guys. Can we do that? Can we read the Bible together in church? Okay. Galatians chapter 4 verse 21 says, Tell me who you want me to be under the law. Are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, another by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for the Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother, for it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy, cry aloud, you who never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. At the time the son born, according to the flesh, persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. Verse 30 says, but what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman talking about Sarah. This is the apostle Paul referencing the story of Abraham and Sarah, how she was supposed to be barren, but God says, I'm gonna give you descendants of many nations. In other words, she will bear a son, but they got too impatient. So he begins to lay with Hagar. When he does this, Ishmael is born. And when Ishmael is born, right, you're probably sitting there like, well, what does that mean? That means we are in the direct lineage of Isaac, the child that is supposed to be born of Sarah because that was the promise originally given. So when we are born, when, when Ishmael was born, he was born out of, out of sin. He was born out of a feeling like, well, I gotta, I'm supposed to have this covenant. I'm supposed to have children, but Sarah, you're barren. How's this going to happen? Let me go sleep with the bond servant. Let me go sleep with her. Let me go sleep with Hagar and have a child so we can make this covenant come true. But God is saying, no, 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 no. You are going to have a son. So Ishmael is born. And what's being said here is what's being reflected is we are all descendants of the free woman. And it's really just Paul telling us, and he's using, like I said, a patriarch story, a patriarchal story between Abraham and Sarah to drive this point home that the Gentiles are also in that lineage. They are also descendants of the promise. And so it's, a, it's, I wish I had more time to really break this down to you even better, but we're just, for the sake of time, we got to move on. And we see that these allegories are woven together when he begins to talk about one covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar, and Hagar stands for Mount Sinai. Again, this is theological that Paul's bringing out. So what do you do with that? You don't go skim through that. 
what do you do? You go all the way back to Genesis. You're like, okay, I'm almost done with the Bible, but now it's telling me to go all the way back to Genesis. Do it. Because God's trying to speak to you. There's heavy concepts there that you need to understand. And I encourage you guys, study the covenants because that's the direct relationship and promises that God gives his creation. Let's go to enigma. Enigma is perplexing speech or text, a riddle or poetic meaning. In other words, Jesus states, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Whoa, what do you got, man? What's in your barbecue recipe? Right? I have food to eat that you do not know about. This is an enigma. It's perplexing speech. A riddle. We know what food he's talking about. Some about the spirit. He's talking about teachings. That's what he's talking about, right? Then we have personification, right? The ascribing of human characteristics to inanimate objects or ideas to animals. In other words, tomorrow worries. Well, tomorrow's not a person. How does it worry, right? So this is the personification taking place. You're giving tomorrow uh, an inanimate object some kind of understanding or characteristic of a human being. Then metonymy. A figure of speech in which one word or phrase is substituted for another with which it is closely associated, right? Circumcision stands for Jews. Uncircumcision stands for Gentiles. Sword of the Spirit stands for the Bible. These are just representation, right? It's metonymy. And then, you know what, let's do this. Let's go through, we're gonna, Isaiah, we're going to finish the last four slides very quickly. And then I want you guys to go ahead and start turning to Philemon. We're going to read it together. Oxymoron, combining, to, uh, combining together of terms that are opposites or contradictory, right? Light and darkness. I love this one because it paints a great picture, right? Hyperbole, an obvious and intentional exaggeration. In John chapter 21, verse 25, it says, even the world would not be able to hold all the books of Jesus' doings. Again, this is the whole thing of, you know, just being exaggerating. Sometimes the Bible does do that. You would need to be able to identify that. Okay, irony. Let's go to irony. Irony. The use of words to express something different from and often opposite to their literal meaning or sarcasm. Paul calls the Corinthians rich when they weren't. Right? He was referring to their arrogance and the way they were carrying themselves. And then apostrophe. When the text speaks of an absent object as those that they can hear. David addresses Absalom in 2 Samuel as if he were still alive. These things happen. These are figures of speech. What I want you to do is when I give you these handouts or you get them, I want you to start identifying some of these figures of speech in Scripture or maybe just turn to the Scriptures I reference so you have a better understanding because I know I went through that pretty quickly. So I want you to go ahead and turn to Philemon, all right? And then we're going to read that together. I know it was part of your homework. And what I want to do is just kind of do a verse-by-verse verse reading really quickly here. It's not long because Philemon's only 25 verses, but it, it, it has some heavy stuff in it, okay? And um, I want let's just read it, and then we'll see what the text is throwing at us, okay? I want us to read it together, and I want to see what the text is throwing at us. I'm going to read out of the ESV version. If you have that version, if not, it's okay, all right? But I'm going to read it. We're going to start in verse 1, all right? It says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Epaphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So we got some funny names there, but we also have some names that have been recognized, right? Paul, a prisoner 
for Christ Jesus. So is Paul in prison? Possibly, right? Paul's here. Timothy, our brother, to Philemon. So we have, who's the author? Paul and Timothy. Two authors off the bat. However, it changes, and I'll show you this, okay? To who? Philemon. Who's this guy? Anybody named Philemon in here? Right? Who's this guy? Right? Let's continue to read. Our, be our beloved fellow worker, right? And Epiphia, our sister, and Acapi sorry, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a greeting. I just read a greeting. Now, now, maybe some of you have that listed there as labeled as a greeting in your publication, right? Let's continue in verse four. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Who is he talking about? Philemon, okay? He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Philemon, hold on, let's stop. Let's stop, don't read on. Philemon, we know just a little bit about him. Number one, Paul loves the guy the tone and everything that's taking place, the greeting, he loves him. He has a relationship with him. Something is happening here, right? So we, it should spark our interest. For he says in verse seven, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. So they have a relationship, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon does some kind of ministry. He does some kind of ministry. He's He's in the kingdom business. I can kind of put that together based off early verses, right? So this is the general rule when reading a letter. When reading a letter, don't skim past the greeting. There's a lot of detail here. So now we know Philemon has a relationship with Paul. Let's continue to read on. Accordingly, though, in verse 8, accordingly, though, I am behold enough in Christ to command you to do what is, re what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Let's stop there. Paul has a child? No. It's a son. Who said that? Raise your hand. Son of the faith. That's right, Eddie. Son of the faith. He looks at him. So we have a relationship. A child is a relationship. When he says child, he's talking about a relationship. A son of the faith. So he looks at Onesimus. Onesimus is a son of the faith. So who's this guy? So he likes Philemon, but then he's like, um, I appeal to you for Onesimus, right? Whose father, oh, sorry, let's read. I appeal, verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So something happened. So Paul's in prison. Kind of looks like that, right? We're getting it from the scriptures. Then he meets him. Something happens when he's in So, and I, when I studied this a little bit on my own time, it's possible that Onesimus went to Rome and Paul was in prison in Rome, like I told you yesterday. And so during this imprisonment, Onesimus kind of, he kind of gets converted because before he was useless, but now he is useful. So what's happening here? Let's, let's read. 
I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. So right there at that verse, you could see he's sending him back. So Anisimus shows some kind of value to Paul, wanted to keep him, but Paul wants to send him back. He wants to send him back for some reason. Let's continue to read. Remember, you're, you're, this is CSI. You got to put this together, guys. Verse 14, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So in other words, he's kind of asking and deferring to Philemon for some kind of consent, for some kind of permission. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant. Let's stop right there. What's a bondservant? It's a slave. Cultural context. Let's talk about this, the timing of this. It's not, when you say slave, it's not always racial, especially in the Bible. This was a career. A bondservant was a career, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. And so he's, Onesimus did something. He did something and he left. He runs to Rome. And I'm wondering if he ran there because of Paul. He did something wrong. So he kind of went to Paul, and it looks like they had a relationship. Looks like there might have been some conversion there, right? Because he says he was once useless, but now he is useful. And so he has some value to the ministry in the kingdom now. So Philemon, right, who is kind of the, the master in this, he obviously kind of needs to give permission in order for Paul to have him. But he, Paul, Paul's not asking for permission. He's sending him back. Why do you think he's sending him back? To make things right between the two. So And so he's sending him back. So I think what's happening here, when you look at this, let's continue to read in verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. In other words, I don't want you looking at him as a bondservant. I want you to look at him as a brother in Christ when he goes back to you. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greeting. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Now, I know we went through that pretty quickly, but this is one of those ones where we've learned that the author is Paul, right? What's the genre? It's a letter. 
Who's the audience? It's this guy named Philemon who was in the kingdom business, right? So, and then the intent was take him back. He's done you wrong, but take him back. And if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. And be obedient. I know you will be obedient and you will do more. It's almost like he's telling him like, I'm your pastor. You're going to forgive this guy. You're going to love him. And you're going to take him back. And he's your brother in Christ, not just your bondservant. It's 25 verses. But in those 25 verses, does it not teach us how to treat each other? It's such a spectacular passage of scripture. And then Paul begins to, in his final greeting, he begins to name other prisoners. Do you know why he does that? He's validating them for the letters to come. In other words, if Epaphras, when he gets out, he may send you a letter from me. He starts to validate people. So when you see names in the Bible, yeah, they may be hard to pronounce and they may be very foreign to us, but these people were part of the kingdom business. And there's a purpose in Paul's ministry of why he's mentioning these people, right? And see what happens when you begin to read it slow and you begin to know who the author is, what type of genre, what was the intent, right? And what was the cultural fact? Well, there's a cultural fact, simply bondservant. That's kind of foreign to us, you know? But this was an occupation back then. And we learn about forgiveness and transformation. There was some kind of transformation that took place there. And so I hope you guys were benefit, I hope you guys benefit from reading that tonight. And I wanted to make sure that you don't ignore these smaller books in the Bible. Don't, don't ignore them. Read them. Read them slow. And when you start to read them, know the genre, know the author, know the backgrounds, the different settings culturally. Know those things because God will begin to speak to you. And so what I want to do right now is I just want to, I kind of want to, this was my last slide. I, I want to pray and then we're going to open it up for some questions. I believe you guys have some cards there. So if you have some questions, you, please make sure they come up to me. But let me just pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your scriptures, Father. Lord, we know that these scriptures are here to guide us, to instruct us, and to speak to us. Father, we ask that during this seminar, Lord, that we remember the things taught. Lord, that you would speak to us in our time of devotion, our time of reading, that it would be a time of just of a relationship with you that would grow stronger, that when we read the scriptures, Lord, that we not take it in vain, but Father, that we read them slowly. And as we begin to read them slowly, you give us understanding and you give us the wisdom to hear your voice. Father, I ask for every person in this place, as they pick up their word, that it would make them hungry, Lord. That they, would, that they would fall deeper in love with you, your character, and have a deeper understanding of your will for their lives. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity, and we ask that you continue to be with us, continue to give us favor and understanding in, your, in our lives, Father. We thank you, we love you, in Jesus' name, amen. We can give God some praise for that. So I think we have, um, does anybody have a question or... or I, I don't know if someone's going to bring me up these. We have these cards here. And so does anybody have them? I think we have a bucket. You could put it in the bucket. I'm going to answer some of these questions. Now I'll say this. I'm going to just preface it with this. I don't know everything. Okay? And I'm not going to pretend that I know the answer. If I don't know the answer, I'm going to say, I don't know. Sorry. You know? Um, but that doesn't mean you run off and go to YouTube at 11 p.m. or Instagram Live. Okay? 
So, okay, we got a few. Go ahead and give your, give your questions or your cards uh, to the middle there in the bucket. Go ahead and just pass it in. Any more? Are there any more? Oh, you, go ahead. Ask your question. Great. Yeah, so let me, that's a great question. So um, I talked a little bit about this yesterday, and that's a fabulous question. Um, when, you, when, you accept, when you accept Christ in your life, generally what I tell people is read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in the New Testament, and then read Romans, okay? And then after you read Romans, you could read Acts. This is gonna give you a, a good understanding of salvation and the early church, and of our Savior when you read the Gospels. So read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? And then read Romans, and then read Acts. Once you do those things, then you're kind of free to roam around a little bit. Now, I encourage you, if you weren't here yesterday, to really know the genres, right? Because once you get saved and you're learning and you, maybe you're, you're renewing your, your, your life in Christ, I still would tell people, read the Gospels, read Romans, and read Acts. Because those things are going to keep you understanding, and you'll fall deeper in love with God. So I encourage you guys to do that. Does that does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. Yeah. Page one. I said it yesterday, and maybe I offended some folks, but it's okay. I don't, I'm offensive sometimes. The Old Testament can be pretty boring, and as a new believer, if you have a hard time picking up your Bible, I'm not going to tell you to read Leviticus. I'm not going to tell you to read those things because it's just not like. It's, it's not gripping, especially for the Western thought, American. It's just a, our culture, it's just not gripping for us. Now, it may be gripping for other cultures, but I'm talking about in this setting, right? So, all right. Let me, it looks like we have a lot here. You guys are, you guys are wearing me down. If I can't read your handwriting, don't get mad at me, okay? I love you. Already, I can't answer this one. How did the <laughs> How did the wise man know the star was the birth of Jesus' star? Because the prophets talked about it. That's all I can give you at this moment. Can I give you the exact verse? No, I think it's in Malachi somewhere. If you want to read it, it talked about that star. And so when they, when it, when they had their scriptures, they knew the teachings of the prophets, okay? And so they knew that they, what to expect. So when Christ came, they can identify it. That was also the purpose of the prophets, not only to give the advice of kings, but to give, um, to give us understanding of the Savior to come, Okay. Thank you. Oh, thank you for that. What study Bible do you have? Okay, I'm going to take this for the next half hour. Let me, okay. So, oh, which one do I not have? There's a lot. Of, there's honestly a lot I don't have. So for the past 10 years, I, I was studying out of a um, uh, new American Standard Bible study Bible, okay? It was given to me, it was called the Ryrie Study Bible. It was given to me by my uncle. And um, he, uh, he actually notated it. And when he gave it to me at the time, I didn't really know uh, that I would like it so much. I was like, hey, thanks, man. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. And uh, it, it, that study Bible stuck with me for uh, over 10 years. And then just recently, I told my wife, like, hey, I'm a pastor now. And um, I've always wanted this study Bible for the past, like, nine years that came out and it was the ESV study Bible. Um, because I would actually Google like the ESV study Bible notes 
And uh, I, I would love the scriptures of the reference. I would love that it's very unbiased in some of the theological content. And then the maps. I love the maps. They have so many maps. Like over-the-top maps. And then they have diagrams. And so I just loved it. And I never had it, but I would always like try to find the pictures for when I taught classes. And I'm like, why don't I just buy this thing? So I literally told my wife, like, hey, I really want this study Bible. It's very expensive. And, and I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say. I think it was like $260. So it's, it's right here. You, I'll, I'll put it. I'll put it right here. Okay, I'm not putting it on the floor. I'm putting it on the stage. Okay, um, I'm gonna keep it right there. You're welcome to look at it. Okay, just please don't mess it up. Okay, all right. But you're welcome to look at it with care and grace, the grace that God gave you. Okay, so ESV Study Bible. Um, you can get them for ten bucks. You can get them for ten bucks. They're not the pretty looking one like that, but you know they have the hardcover. Um, they're like 10 bucks. Seriously, get it, all right? And 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 then I would even go as far as put a study Bible in your bathroom, okay? You could figure out what I mean by that, okay? Not your phone. You, you open up the Word of God, okay? What study Bible do you recommend and which translation, if you had one study Bible, which one? Uh, I think there's the same, same answer, ESV, okay? ESV study Bible. Uh, what translation? Hold on. Let me, that's actually more specific. I still like the NASB translation um, because it just flows in my brain after reading NASB for like 10 years and teaching out of it. It just rolled off my tongue. So when I began to preach and teach, it was just easier. ESV is kind of setting me back a bit. Um, there are more direct translations from the Greek and the Old Testament Hebrew, right? There's direct translations. New King James is really good. King James, good luck. Uh, if that's you, awesome. But honestly, it's very tough to read and understand. Uh, NIV Study Bible, another $10 study Bible. Not as biased as you would think. Very good study Bible. Very, very good. NIV is, is safe. It's safe. If you want to buy somebody a study Bible for Christmas and you don't know, like, I don't know if they're going to like it, just buy them the NIV. Especially if they don't have one, just get them. Great gift. The NIV Study Bible is a great gift uh, because that translation, from a, from a modern perspective and the way we talk, it's just easy to understand. So I highly recommend that for translation, uh, especially for those of you that maybe you're not maybe you're not interested in the scholarly level of biblical study, but you just want to know a little bit more uh, for your faith. NIV is great. Okay, does that answer the question? You guys good with that? Okay. What is the difference between major and minor prophets? This is a great question. It's actually very easy. It's the size of the book. Isaiah is like 54 chapters, major. Habakkuk's three chapters, minor. Okay, that's it. That's all it is, okay? That's all. It's just the amount of text written by each prophet, okay? Good question. Uh, what version should I read my Bible? If you're new to reading the Bible and studying it, NIV's good, okay? NIV's just fine. If you, uh, if you are, have been in the church for 10, 20 years, I would advise you to maybe start getting into the ESV and you've been studying for 10, 20 years. Get into the ESV, NASB, uh, get into those. New King James, um, as a matter of fact, uh, me and Pastor Mike, I was in his study 
uh, yesterday at his house. And I, we just got talking about Bibles because we're geeks, right? We're Christian geeks. And so he had a Bible that I love. Um, and it, when, I, when God first started to really speak to my life, um, this Bible, it was the New King James Nelson Study Bible. But here's the thing. It's not available anymore. But that Bible, that Bible's bad. It's awesome. And so uh, if you can find that Bible and you've been in the church and studying the Word of God for 10, 20 years, that's the one. If you can't find it, ESV, ESV Study Bible is probably the next best thing. That's my personal opinion. Okay, so if you're in here like, well, and you want to argue with your pastor about it, don't argue with your pastor. It's just my opinion, okay? If your pastor tells you to get the message Bible, don't be offended, okay? <laughs> How do you identify subculture in your church and what should be done about it? This is a leadership question, but it's a good one. Um, and it's something that uh, I talk to my pastor about frequently. So I feel like I can answer this very a subculture is when people start to say things differently than your pastor. That's what I identify what a subculture is. And, and I think today, especially after the pandemic, because of all the doctrine floating around online, it creates a subculture. Now, people want to celebrate certain authors. People want to celebrate uh, certain prophets. Uh, they want to celebrate modern prophets, of course. Uh, they want to celebrate certain pastors. You know, Stephen Furtick, uh, people hate on him. I love his teachings. They get me all fired up. So I'm going to take it, right? Like, if I walk away from that and I feel good, I feel great, but my pastor doesn't like something he says, I'm going to be like, I don't like what he says either. You know, if and, and so the subculture begins to take place when people want to rise above your pastor and go against their teachings, um, I can tell you this, and yeah, maybe I am. Uh, you may think I'm biased, but I'm not. I didn't get saved in a praise chapel or reach network church. I actually studied at a school that has very differing opinions in the giftings and the the works of the spirit. I studied at a school that was very different. Uh, why did I do that? I did that because I was interested, and I, I wanted to really challenge myself. And so there are subcultures in every single church. Some of them may be good. For example, there may be somebody that is like biting at the teeth to teach, right? And then they're inviting people to their house so they can teach them. But if they're not like, you know, solidified with their pastor to teach, that's a problem. That's called a somebody creating a subculture. And it's happening more and more and more. And so there's doctrines out there that will create subcultures. Going back to the bias part, we preach out of the Bible in this network and in this church. The pastors that are here, we preach out of the word of God. In other words, we're not coming up with our own stuff. We, were, we do what the word of God says to do. And we preach the things that are tough to preach in the Bible. We are called to do that. Your pastors are called to do that. And they're encouraged to do that. And guess what? They're confident that they can do that or else they wouldn't be released. And so we don't just release anybody. My pastor doesn't release anybody to go pastor a church, okay? 
this is a well thought out understanding of who can do it. It's about loving people. It's about doing it when people don't like you, being around people that probably don't like you or have an agenda and you know about it, but they still got to love on you. You know, they still got to kiss your babies. They got to do all that. And it's because they have a genuine love for people and to see people get saved. But the subculture is completely different. There's an agenda behind it. And so we have to be careful of those things. And there are doctrines. I believe there was an individual that asked me yesterday, you know, there's somebody that wants to talk about the word with me, but I don't really know. I don't think we see eye to eye on some things. And I said, you go ahead and talk to that individual, but remember, you keep it at the scripture. And if the scripture doesn't say it, then don't assume it. Stay within the scriptures. Because people want to say, well, you know, there's this group of people that did this, and then there's this one verse here that solidifies that. Yeah, but there's like 90,000 other verses that say this, and you're saying that. That's different. Subcultures are just that very thing. They're going to try to divide the culture of what the pastor is trying to create. Your pastor is trying to create a culture that gets everybody saved. Not certain people, not a certain background, every single person that walks this earth, that's the culture they're trying to create. Why would you go against that? If you're going against that, or if that doctrine is going against that, then that's a subculture you shouldn't be a part of, okay? Yes, these are my friends, but I also look at them as my pastors. I was underneath Pastor Angel and I was underneath Pastor Mike for years and years. They've taught me things, you know? And again, it has nothing to do with age. I think I'm older than both of them. (laughs) Come on, man. Yeah. Right? There you go. I can receive from the Word of God. Not just the man. I receive from the Word of God. If if somebody's preaching the Bible out here, I'm going to listen. I'm going to get something out of it. Especially at my church, oh man, who's coming to preach? Okay, what what verse is he using? Oh man, this is good. It's the word of God. I want to hear the word of God. I come to church, I want to hear the word of God. I don't want to hear an opinion. I want to hear the word of God. Right? So just keep that in mind. I I think I answered that correctly, right? Oh, (laughs) this is it. What does this mean? Is 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 there any other questions? Is there any other questions? No? Go ahead, ask it. Oh, okay. What's your name? Catherine. Catherine, welcome. Thank you. Oh. Oh, we okay, have a for you, Catherine. Is it on? The sound guy needs to unmute it. Yeah. I know Jeremy too, guys. Okay. So Hello. Oh. Yeah, there you go. Oh, he needs to turn it down. The gain. The gain. That was really loud. Okay, so so I am fairly new, so this was obviously a lot, right? Like, yeah. I took a lot of notes, and I know Good. you have slides, but you said different I'm gonna things. Give, than I'm going to give you slide. this. You'll have an opportunity to get them. Okay. But I, I wrote down a lot of more of what you said than what was actually on the slide. Okay. I, I, I don't know. Studying. Sure. Um, but like, so I'm going to start off with the Gospels, but I, it'll take me like 10 years to get through the Bible if I do all of those things my first time around. So is there like a beginner's version of the certain things I should key in on if I can't do all of them at once? So the Gospels are only... Um, four books, mm-hmm. and they're fairly short. You can actually read all the Gospels probably in a week. Okay? And do all of those things. Yeah, 
yeah, read yeah. them that way. The way that yes, you yes, you can. Yes, you okay, can. Okay. Yeah, you can. <laughs> so you could do all those probably in a week. Read the, you'll focus on the gospels one week, get, get through with them, write them down. And then if you're not happy, then the next week, guess what? You do the gospels again, right? Like I said, so you want to do that. Then you can get into Romans. Okay. And then acts. And those are very short or Romans is 18 chapters or 16 chapters, excuse me. And then acts Oh, I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting. I think it's like, uh, oh, yeah, I'm not, how many? I'm not 26? Worried. 28. Thank you. I'm not worried necessarily about which book or like, yeah, which books to uh-huh. read, but like if I have to choose whether I'm going to look at words and phrases or if I'm going to pay attention to the authors or the cultures or the mm-hmm. genre, like, are there certain ones that are more important to pay attention to than others? Or should I pay attention to all of those things each time I read? I would pay attention book? to all of those things each time you're reading. I know it sounds like a lot. And yeah, it can be intimidating. <laughs> so what I, what I would say is this, is you don't have to perfect it right away. You practice it. This has to be practiced. This isn't something that you, you, you're going to develop overnight, right? But what you want to do is you want to be able to practice these things, and they become part of your subconscious every time you open the book. That now, like, oh, God, I'm going to, like, wait a minute. I don't understand what's going on here. Where is this at on the timeline? And that's why I encourage you. Uh, even in, in your in your shoes, right? In your circumstance, get a study Bible if you don't have one already because at the beginning of the study Bible, it'll give you all those things. It'll give you the background, the setting. And now you have it all there. So you read that introduction, which is like two pages. That's really all it is generally, right? You read that introduction and then you get into the actual book of the Bible. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. All right, great. Thank you, Catherine. Any other questions? You guys must be sick of me if you have no questions. Sorry. All right. I think, I think that does it. I think I'm done with the seminar. But listen, I think I'm going to be back here on Sunday and preaching, right, Mike? I, I could still come back. All right. Here you go. Let's give my Pastor Mike a hand. Thanks for tuning in to the Reclaim Church podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. If you would like to stay up to date with the church, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at ReclaimTX. 